Well, Sanctus Church, uh, good morning to you. We're so glad that you're joining us here today, either at Ajax, Bowmanville, Port Perry, or Pickering, or beyond. Thanks for being with us. And we're now in week three in this little mini-series out of the book of Jonah. And as we've been going through it, uh, the stories coming back from across our congregation are encouraging and intriguing and challenging As we've been going through this well-known book, if you grew up in the church and if you didn't, something you're learning and discovering, we're realizing that the story of Jonah is coming very close to each one of us. God, through this book, is confronting some of our most cherished pride, our, our fear, and our bad views. God showing all of us, interestingly, that sin is still sin, and yet, at the same time, God showing us mercy stands at the ready And God is so amazing and so unexpected and so hope-giving and so loving towards us. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn back into this little book, whether it's virtual or physical, and we're going to go to chapter 3. Now, now on a personal level, not my personal level, in Jonah's own story, he's moved from running to rebellion almost to resurrection. But the story is far from done at this moment. God comes close to Jonah once again, and he speaks So Jonah 3.1 reads like this. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And and don't read that so very quickly. God, when he speaks to Jonah again, does not bring up Jonah's past. God does not say, well, let's try this again, but I know you're such a freaking failure. God doesn't show up and speak to Jonah and say, well, let's try this again, but I still know that you have racism issues and you're divided in your own heart and you think you're better than those people I'm sending you to. God just chooses to speak. And he speaks to Jonah. And this one little line reminds us that reconciliation is the grand theme in this little book. In chapter 1, God is reconciled with pagan sailors who knew nothing about him. In chapter 2, God is reconciled to Jonah himself and Jonah is reconciled to God. And now there is the profound possibility that even these Assyrians, these Ninevites, these people who are running a terrorist-like state, they themselves might be reconciled also with God. But let's not forget what we saw last week. As we learned last week, Jonah's turning is not complete He still thinks he's better than the people he's being sent to. And we're going to see the real dark side of Jonah actually come out even more in chapter 4. And yet God in all of that says to Jonah, go. And he says in verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I have given you. The call has not changed. The message has not changed either. God says to Jonah once again, go. And let's just sit with that. When God sometimes shows up in our life, he tells us to do something. And the word go is a consuming word, a a life-changing word. It changes the course of our life. It is a command. Go now. Go immediately. It is my will. Do not let fear or anything else stop you from obeying. And he says, I want you, Jonah, as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, to go to your ethnic enemies. Go to the great city of Nineveh, the capital of the great Assyrian Empire. And what was the content of the message? Well, it doesn't change. We learned about it all the way back in chapter 1, Jonah 1-2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Their sin, the Bible says, was so vile and so odious, so rank, the smell floated up right into God's own throne room and he would not have it any longer. And why was the city so wicked? Well, why would God actually say to Jonah, go and preach, but not preach mercy at the beginning, but preach judgment? Well, let me just read that summary 
that I gave all the way back in week one from another. This is what he wrote. Remember, Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories publicly. They used to gloat and celebrate as they thought about whole plains littered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. One of their greatest emperors was well known for depicting torture and dismemberment and decapitation of their enemies in grisly detail on large paintings and large stone reliefs all through the capital. Assyrian history, this person writes, is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After, do you remember this? After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would do this horrific thing where they would typically cut off both of your legs and one arm, but leave one arm and one hand. And as you lay dying and bleeding out, they would shake the hand they left to humiliate you as you die. Even more vicious than that, they would regularly decapitate whole villages or whole cities, but keep some of the family members alive, and they would put the heads of your family and your children on spikes and make you walk in a parade celebrating the death of your own family. They would pull out prisoners' tongues, they would tie people with ropes, and history tells us time and time again, they would literally skin human beings alive and take the human skin and place it on walls to celebrate their victory over us or over you. They would burn teenagers alive, and those who survived all of that incredibly vicious, dark experiences would live under terrible forms of slavery. As this person said, the Assyrians would have been called in modern times a terrorist state. The closest thing we have to it in the last hundred years would be like the Nazi regime or even what we saw through ISIS in the Middle East. And by the way, what I didn't mention in week one is who they worshipped as their god. Their chief god in this culture was Ishtar. She was the goddess of war and the goddess of sexual love. So their chief deity was a blend of divine violence and sex mixed together, demonic at its core. And so God says, go to that city which controls that vast empire that does all of those things and preach against it. Now, from God's view, he's saying, I want you to go to this city, which is the epicenter of power for a whole people group and a whole empire, and why I want you to go is because I want the Ninevites to see their wickedness and their sin. I want them to admit their sin, and and so they will not only see my wrath, but my mercy, because I actually still love them. But that is not Jonah's view. Jonah wants them taken out, He wants them to basically burn in hell, to hell with them for real. Let's take them out, God. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Let's get this done. So Jonah agrees to go. He loves the message of God, sort of. So Jonah's going. Even if he loses his life, he never thinks they're going to respond. So maybe if he dies, it's still worth it. He thinks, as we saw in chapter 1, they didn't deserve any mercy or the message in the first place, but he knows in his heart of hearts, no, listen, I know these people, they oppress me and my own people, so guess what? They're not going to respond. They're still going to get what they deserve, so God, sure, I'll go, and I'll speak this time, and I know you're merciful, but I, my, my hope and my understanding is they're still going to reject me, and by rejecting me, they're going to reject you, so you can get on with judgment, and we can bomb them out of eternity, and let's just, let's just do this. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. So after a 900-mile walk from the fish and vomit moment, do you remember that? He arrives, and he sees the size of the city. And in his day, not in our day, but in his day, this is massive. 
It would be like you arriving to, the, to Toronto, but just not the core of Toronto, the whole of the GTA, and standing there and going, how am I going to do this? Or going to New York City with over 10 million people and going, how am I going to do this? The city was about 55 miles in size and had a population of 120,000. We're like, man, that's Ajax. But back then, it was massive. Now, others say it could have been bigger. Others actually say, no, it was smaller. And the reason why it takes three days to visit is because Jonah would have to visit every single public square to get the message out because there's no Twitter or Instagram or, or anything. Either way, Jonah walks probably for a day and still does not even reach the heart of the city. I'm sure he was conflicted. He felt small, a man against a nation, a person trying to speak to a whole people group, a needle in a haystack. Can you imagine his thoughts? Uh, one voice in thousands, would they care? Would they respond? Would he get killed? Would he be laughed off the street? Did he even care? Surrounded by slaves and people and altars and incense and the business of the street and foreign food and different experiences, he spoke. And it says on the first day Jonah started in the city, he proclaimed this, 40 more days... And Nineveh will be overturned. So the message at this moment in the story is spoken. It goes from private to public. It moves from an intimate conversation between God and one person now to all that would listen. And notice, only eight words are spoken. And it says in 40 days this would take place. If you've read part of your Bible, you might know this. 40 days or 40 was the typical waiting period and testing period in the Bible. Israel wandered for 40 years. Moses prayed for Israel for 40 days. Jesus was tempted for 40 days. So now this holy window is open. In 40 days, this city will be overturned, or would it? Reading this in English, we actually miss the power of what's really being proclaimed and said here. That word in Hebrew, overturned, doesn't have one meaning it actually has two meanings. And by the way, if you're taking notes for Connect Group or for your own study, you should write this down. The word overturned can mean to be destroyed to the very foundation, but the same word also has a positive word, a positive meaning, meaning repentance or reformation. So you can be overturned for bad or for good. And the word is actually used on purpose here in Jonah because if one thing happens, the other thing will not happen. If the other thing doesn't happen, one thing will happen. The word itself literally is used to show the fork on the road. There is only two options before you, reformation or destruction, life or death. And both are being offered. Which one do you want? Now, the destruction version of the word has a terrifying history in the Bible. It is the same word used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And let's not forget that story. Their sin, the Bible says, was also so bad it reached into heaven. And these two cities, according to the Bible, if you read Genesis and you read Ezekiel, you find out why God destroyed these cities. The Bible says they were arrogant, they were overfed, they were unconcerned, they regularly abused or did not help the poor, but also they crossed lines sexually in three different directions. This is also enforced in the book of Jude. So when God looked at all of this, social and private and public sin, he said, I'm done. I'm holy and I'm done. And so if you know the story, it reads like this in Genesis 19, 24. Then, then God rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens, and thus he overthrew these cities and the entire plain, including all the living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. 
Now, Jonah, again, has been told that in 40 days, outright in his mind, he's hoping destruction is going to happen just like Sodom. And, and he's basically proclaiming, you've crossed all sorts of lines too. You sin regularly sexually all the time. You're a glutton for blood, and you kill, and you hate the poor, and you destroy people, and you oppress my own people. So God is going to overturn you. But unlike Sodom and Gomorrah's story, which only had a few hours of warning, God gives this space, which, as one person said, creates this tension-laden interval between the delivery of the message and possible fulfillment. And that brings us back to the word overturn. Would they choose life, reformation, or death and outright destruction? Would God be put on mute or listened to? Pure destruction or a new beginning? Now remember, Jonah has zero expectation God is going to show up. And so he spoke. And he spoke, and he spoke, and he spoke again and again. And to his horror, and to his shock, and to his anger, when he spoke eight words, everything changed. And what we're about to read is the literal sovereign favor of God. His story and his message spreads like wildfire. And this is the turning in the story of Jonah for everybody. It says that the Ninevites believed God. Oh, and not only did they believe God, they declared a fast. All of them, from greatest to least, they put on sackcloth. The city, the people en masse begin to accept the message, hoping for mercies. And scholars point out that they followed the classic Middle Eastern worldview of how you respond to possible judgment. There's a threat of disaster. Then there's an act of penance. And then you begin to pray that this would stop. You see this in 1 Samuel and in Esther and in Joel too. So they want to show God that they're serious. So they fast. Again, what's fasting? I love what Richard Foster once wrote. It's the voluntary abstention from an otherwise normal function like eating for the sake of serious spiritual activity. So this whole capital, this would be like Ottawa or, or London or, or D.C. declaring a fast. Can you imagine? And no one's, no one's eating, and, and, and more than that, they, they cover themselves in sackcloth and ash, the traditional symbol of mourning and repentance. And, and who does it? Least to greatest, small, large, educated, uneducated, poor, rich, everyone. So God's spirit is now moving in such a way that the people know this is true. But more, what we don't catch in the Bible is this. God had already been working and preparing the ground in known and unknown ways. See, religious historians tell us that just before Jonah shows up, in Nineveh, in this time, the Assyrians had experienced four major events that already put them on alert something was wrong. There had been a major famine. There had been political revolts. They'd experienced a group of sicknesses and plagues they had not experienced before. And there had been an eclipse. And all of these in this ancient worldview would have been a sign to them that the gods were displeased. And after all that takes place, suddenly someone they considered inferior, Jonah, an Israelite, because remember, they are already oppressing and making them pay tribute. Jonah shows up and says, oh, I just want to tell you, in 40 days, this place is going to burn. And they all went, oh my goodness, we've known something's wrong. And then Jonah says, and it's not your God that's upset, it's the God of all gods, the God Almighty. See, God had prepared the Ninevites for this moment. But there's even a deeper thing here. The words used in the Bible here show that this repentance is real. 
It says that the Ninevites believed God. This word believed is the same word used by God when Abram decided to follow God. It says in Genesis 15, 6, we read about this in our Galatians series multiple times. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So they're not just acknowledging that Jonah's God was greater than their God or stronger. This isn't just a statement of fact. This is a statement of trust. So the story goes from Jonah, one man, to a whole city and then back to one man. Goes actually to the king who's running the super state of the time. It says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and ash, and sat down in the dust. Now watch this closely. The most powerful man in this empire, one of the probably top four or five most powerful men on earth at this moment, rises from his throne. Why does that matter? Because the throne is the seat of authority. It's the seat of power. It's the place of decision. It's the fate of nations. And he takes off his royal robes. He strips himself of authority and wealth. In other words, in our day, he stripped himself of Hugo Boss and Canali and Armani. And he replaced him with ash and dust and sackcloth and and what he's saying is, I am just human, and my fate is the same as everyone else's. My power and my clothing don't matter. I love what the church father from the fourth century, Maximus of Turin, once wrote about this man. He said, the king conquered enemies with displays of valor, but he conquered God through humility. He is a wise king who, in order to save his people, owns himself as a sinner rather than a king. And he forgets that he's even a king, fearing God who is the king of all. What does this king do? He declares a proclamation, or issues a, doc, a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man, now beast or herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. The king not only follows the people, but now leads the people. He goes farther. He knows that the community and all animated life is now threatened with appropriate destruction. And the king, after an emergency meeting in the inner circle, gives a royal edict enforcing what's already started on the grassroots, but clarifies it even more. He says, no person nor any animal may not only eat, but you may also not drink. Now, why animals too? Well, religious historians tell us that in Persian culture, the regular practice was in mourning ceremonies, animals were included because they believe they share the same fate as humans. Now, I've read this story most of my life and heard it, and I've considered the fear of this, but I've never considered the noise of this. I, I read a farmer who thought about this. And he says, you want to hear bad noise? He says, just here's what you need to do. He says, if you're ever on a cattle farm, which so many of you never will be, but if you ever are, he says, don't feed 20 head of cattle for one day. He says, just so you know, you will hear their bellowing a half a mile away, and it will just grow and grow. Now, I want you to imagine this. That every dog and every cat and every pig and every sheep and every goat and every cattle, every cow in the whole region, in the suburbs, is not fed for an extended period of time. Can you imagine the noise of all the animals, let alone the people praying? The king keeps going, verse 8, let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth, let everyone urgently call on God, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Ah, now this is when this gets really real. This is real repentance, not a show. Notice, they're no longer crying out to Ishtar or another god. They're calling out to Jonah's god. 
Sackcloth and ash are an outside expression of repentance. But then the king, remember who the Assyrians are, says we have to give up our evil ways and our what? Violence. This is what they're famous for. This is how they controlled their empire. This is, he says, we actually, here's what he's saying. We need to basically obey the Ten Commandments. What? And then the king says, who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, so we will not perish and die. And when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, oh, did you notice that? God didn't go, oh my goodness, they're covered in ash and sackcloth, I need to pay attention. God didn't go, oh wow, the animals are really loud, it's bothering me up here, Gabriel. God, when he saw that they turned from their evil ways, he had what? Compassion. And did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God had compassion, felt sorrow. God relented. The calamity, the destruction, they rightly deserved. Remember, their religious system and their actions and their violence was everything God says no to in the Ten Commandments. They were guilty. Guilty. They were evil, sinful. But God's grace was even bigger. It's like we read in Jeremiah 18, where God says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as a potter does? Behold, like the clay in a potter's hand, so you are in my hands, O house of Israel. Oh, at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot or pull down or destroy it. And if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. Concerning the calamity I was planning on bringing upon it. Oh, God doesn't change his mind. He always holds out mercy. See, Jonah comes and says to God, okay, I'm going to give your message. They're not going to believe me. I'll probably die, but I'll die happy, and they'll all burn. But what he doesn't understand is God sent Jonah to those who were evil and deserved judgment and were his enemy to show the world and to Jonah that a city, even this city, even the worst city, could be changed. So the question we need to ask is this. Like, oh, not what I just learned that I didn't know before, like animals participated in mourning ceremonies. Interesting historical fact. What is the same God of Jonah, who we worship in this church, found through Jesus Christ by the Spirit, actually not just teaching us, but calling us to? Well, here's the first thing we need to recapture and recover God's judgment is real, and it is necessary. All humans, all of us, when we all sin, we fall under the wrath of God, the judgment of God. God's law is forever, and it is true. And sin is breaking God's law, but it's deeper. When we break God's law, we break actually not just the law, we attack God because the laws stem from who he is. The laws reflect who God is. See, all sin has a Godward force. You might hurt yourself or hurt a neighbor or a friend or one country might hurt another country and the sin is very painful, but all sin at the end goes against God. And the Bible is clear. God warned us in the Garden of Eden, the wages of sin is death. And God is perfect and holy. And here's what the Bible says again and again, whether you like it or not, whether you struggle, it's true. God says that he hates something, sin. He hates it because he's perfect and he's holy and he actually loves perfection. 
because he himself is perfect. But interestingly, God is not just holy, he's also love. But what we need to do is begin to, again, remove the idea and never on social media again repeat this phrase, God loves me just the way I am. He doesn't. That's unbiblical. God loves us despite the way we are. God hates our sin. God loves us despite the way we are. So God must deal with his holiness and his love. Which brings us to this next very needed point. God's dealing with people has always been on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of our works. And here's what the Bible presents, and the story of Jonah presents. We're all like Nineveh. The most religious and unreligious person is Nineveh. We're all known if we look at our actions for living without God or being cruel or violent or prideful or lustful or abusive, fill in the blank. But notice it took, no, it took Nineveh to turn, but God still had to have compassion in response. And the ultimate expression, if you read the Bible cover to cover, the ultimate expression of the mercy God shows to Nineveh is found in Jesus. And like Jonah, Jesus comes to warn us and to give us a second chance of forgiveness, personal relationship, eternal life versus eternal separation. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's mercy towards us. And if we turn like the Ninevites and we repent like the Ninevites, he comes and saves us from being overturned and gives us compassion. I love years ago, Max Lucado, who wrote this, if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one, but he will leave the final one for us. The choice is ours. We can never be saved by what we do. The Ninevites were not saved because they fasted. And even because they repented. That just sent the ground. We can only be saved when God turns and says, and I give you mercy. Because we've actually broken the law. We're actually guilty. Period. And, and Jesus is the ultimate expression of this mercy. Another wrote, our, problem, our biggest problem is sin. Sin cuts us off from God, and sin keeps us out of heaven and out of relationship. And how do you get rid of sin? Well, you can't erase them or cause them to disappear by ourselves. We don't have the power. The only way to get rid of sin is for someone to come along and take them away for us. And that's exactly what the mercy of God is. That's exactly what Jesus does. We are weighed down by the burdens of our sin, but Jesus took the burden upon himself and died on a cross for us. To put it another way, he takes the punishment we deserve. This is what Peter wrote near the end of his life. For Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. We're all Ninevite. We're all unrighteous. And by the way, I just want to say as I'm speaking here at all four sites and even maybe years later online or in the next week, if you've never embraced the mercy of God, what do you do? Just admit you're Nineveh. Just admit that you are like that city and you've sinned against God and admit you're wrong and admit you're lost and admit you've believed in other religions or yourself or all the things and just say, have mercy. Turn to Jesus, the wrath-absorbing Savior. Simply believe he has decided to have mercy on you and then you will become a child of God and God will have compassion on you. I love what Jesus' best friend wrote in John 1.12. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. The king of that pagan nation could become a child of God. So can you. Just turn. Now many of us have turned. Many of us in Sanctus Church are genuine followers of Jesus. Admitted we're sinners and need help. Well, what do we learn from chapter 3? Oh, oh, it's this. 
The book of Jonah, especially chapter 3, tells us so much about evangelism and revival, which we desperately need in the greater Toronto area. One person said this, revival is first God moving towards people that don't even know him or think they know him. It is God and his power which prepared this city of 120,000 people to turn. Let me just declare this this morning. At this moment, 6.2 million people, the GTA does not know their left hand from their right hand spiritually. Revival requires God to affirm the reality of lostness and prepare the ground. It's why Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, generations later, godly sorrow brings repentance which leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow, knowing that there's a God who you're supposed to know and I'm supposed to know, we've all turned, godly sorrow for our sin, never, grand turning never naturally happens. It always takes God to do the pre-step. God prepared Nineveh for the moment. Toronto will never, can you imagine? I was driving here today going by all these houses. No one naturally will go, I need a savior, come help me. And his name is Jesus, by the way. Here's the second thing. Revival requires those who will go and warn people of the impending wrath and mercy of God. Someone needs to proclaim the word of God. See, we don't have an education problem or a psychological problem. We have a deeper problem. We have a sin problem. And we need to go to neighbors and friends in a very kind way, in a very respectful way, but to declare the full truth of our reality. You can do this. This is why we use Alpha all the time. Alpha, as an example, covers all of these conversations. You can also personally go and tell a neighbor or friend. It can be deeply intellectual or personal or simple. But never forget when you're sharing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and our lostness and our possible foundness, the power of the story is not your story. It's the power of the gospel. That's why Paul says all the time in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for whoever believes, first for Jews and non-Jews. The word power is where we get our word dynamite from. In other words, it's a guaranteed place of encounter. When you share what Jesus has truly come to do and share the true condition we all have, he's in the room with you. Do not be afraid. And think about Jonah's message. How many words was it? Eight Eight. It wasn't like a three-hour TED Talk on YouTube. Eight words. And why was it powerful? Because it was God-given. Generations later, also Paul would say in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, we preach Jesus crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to non-Jews, but those whom God has called, both Jew, Greek, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. No thinking person, I've preached this before, no deeply religious person right now, Jewish uh, version of Christianity, uh, uh, Muslim, Hindu, a Wiccan witch, a Sikh, will naturally embrace, run towards the cross. Non-Jews, and this is our culture, want power and beauty and youngness and ideas and external strength and education and new moral thinking, and they want self-empowerment. And our culture absolutely wants self-defined freedom, and it's all about rights and what I have the right to do, and my voice is more important than you. And Jews, still to this day, want Jesus to fit into their theological box. Almost every human being on earth thinks they can outthink God, be smarter than God, think their way to God, or prove themselves to God. None of it's true. None of it's true. 
That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, my message and my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, just like Jonah, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's what? Power. Paul, just like Jonah says, the message of God, the message of the cross, you didn't accept it because it was just intellectually viable alone. Yes, the message of the Bible, and specifically Jesus, deals with every single human need in a very profound way. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny, all dealt with. Is it logical? Yes. Is it hope-inspiring? Yes. Is it historically defensible? Yes. But you don't accept the message of God because we put the puzzle pieces together. Your faith, God's work, is based on the Holy Spirit's power. It's not style. It's not eloquence. It's not superior knowledge. It's not your understanding. It's not your education. It's not even your posture. Ultimately, God's word and God's will and God's wisdom always have to be given through God's Spirit. We are called to, first of all, believe what the Bible says about the human condition and actually believe it. And second, we are called to talk about the mercy and the wrath of God for real. I'm not saying go get a billboard and walk through Pickering Town Center today. But I am saying this is the full story. Lastly, the person says revival, when it happens, requires repentance. This this revival in Nineveh was real because not only did they hear and heed the word of God, that they repented, they confessed their sins and turned. Revival requires repentance, and repentance requires change. You say, okay, well, what do we do with this? Well, there's a few things. The first thing is, again, whoever is within the sound of my voice at this moment, If you have never put your trust and hope in Jesus, call out to the mercy of God. You need to do this. Say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. For us who are followers of Jesus, here's the very first thing we need to do. We need to ask God to literally have mercy on our city. And not only just have mercy on our city, we need to ask the God of Jonah to prepare the ground in this city so the city would even be prepared to listen to the message when it is given. It is a su- there is no way Toronto will ever embrace the message of Jesus without a supernatural act of God setting the ground up. And the only way that we have a part in that is prayer. So let me ask you a question. When is the last time you have sat in a Starbucks or a Tim Hortons or at your couch at home and you've just simply said, God, God, if your wrath is real and your mercy is real, when is the last time you say, please, please prepare this city for your message? Here's the second thing. We are responsible in our different ways to go and tell the whole truth to our family and friends. Not part of it. You cannot have the good news without the bad news. You cannot just have Jesus as Savior without knowing what you're being saved from. We need to stop trying to convince non-Christians they're not happy. They are happy, many of them. This is not a competition between who's happier, who has a better life. This is actually a conversation about eternity, destiny, relationship, and purpose. And so we have to be honest about this. 
and declare this, whether, again, it's through inviting someone to Alpha or sitting down and having coffee, but we need to embrace the whole gospel. And we need to be open to anyone who God would send us to speak to. So let's just take a moment because chapter 3, this message, by the way, like Lego pieces, is not only the setup for chapter 4 next week, Actually, this message today is a setup for the next conversation we're having just before Easter on eternity. So would you stand, please, wherever you might be, whatever site you might be, and could we take a moment to pray a few different things? Number one, if you've never experienced the mercy of God, and the Bible says you are under the wrath of God because you still have not turned, then just say this, say, God forgive me, I admit I'm a sinner. I've trusted in other religions or myself. I've done all sorts of things that you say are wrong, and I'm admitting it. And, and that guy just told me, you're not just holy, but you're merciful. So have mercy on me, please. I ask for Jesus to literally cover my sin because of what he's done. I want the mercy of God in my life. Uh, for the rest of us in this moment, like one man sitting in a massive city expecting very little to happen, here's what we need to pray now as Sanctus Church. Number one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, hear the prayers of your people in this city. God, Toronto will never turn to you without you showing up first. So our request is send godly sorrow into Toronto no matter the cost. We're asking this into our neighborhoods, into our businesses, into our education, into our universities and high school, like begin to open people's eyes to their real condition. Lord, help us to be full of incredible grace. Help us not to be like Jonah. I'm, I'm really praying this, Lord. Help not one person from Sanctus Church to be rude, overbearing, hateful, arrogant, but help this church to find confidence in the whole gospel and to share it for real. And Holy Spirit, we need your help because this church, we do a lot of things really well, but we keep saying as a church, personally, when we give our evaluations, evangelism is our struggle. So Lord, forgive us and help us. Not just thank you for Alpha, Lord, but just help us to give the whole gospel to neighbors and friends and prepare the ground. And lastly, we pray for a great turning to take place. And we don't just pray for us. Um, we, we pray there would be such a turning, all of us as churches don't know what to do. Have mercy on the city we love. And lastly, as I'm praying, I feel prompted to do this, so I'm going to. Um, some of you need to begin the process of repenting for not believing what the Bible says about the whole gospel. Some of you love the love of God, but you don't think God's holy. He is. Like some of you just need to say, Lord, would you help me work this out? And I'm sorry for diminishing who you are. And just start that process today. So Lord, thanks for what you're going to do. Thanks for this book. Thank you that it's our responsibility to speak and love and the results are yours. But we do pray for a supernatural move that we've never seen. All glory be to God the Father who is holy and merciful. All glory be to Jesus the Son who died for all sins, not just some. All, all glory be to the Holy Spirit.
who prepares the ground and lets us see Jesus. Amen.